Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Susan Oxtaby, the senior curator at Berkeley Art Museum, Pacific Film Archive, and the curator of a retrospective of the films of Federico Fellini, not only the films that he directed, but also the early films or a couple of the early films that he wrote. Federico Fellini would have been 100 years old on January 20th. The last time uh, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive presented a full Fellini retrospective was 25 years ago. And for this series that will run until May 21st at BAMPFA, we are bringing all of the works as digital restorations from Rome. And there have been three Italian archives that have been involved in, in working on this for the last couple of years to make digital restorations at a very high level from the original camera negatives. So it's a major undertaking by the Italian government, by Italian cultural institutions and the archives specifically uh, the archives in Bologna, in Rome, and at Lucia Cinecitta, which is also in Rome. And we're really, really grateful to those entities for preparing Fellini's work so that they can be seen on the big screen. There are Fellini films that have been kept in distribution in, in the United States, and over the years we've often shown new 35mm prints or shown Fellini films in different contexts. But this is truly special to have the chance to present a comprehensive Fellini retrospective. And I have to say, we're really, really honored that the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is in the lead position for the North American uh, celebration of Fellini's centennial. And actually, at the moment, right now in London, England, at the British Film Institute, the BFI is also presenting Fellini over the next two months. So I think we're just at the outset of what will be a lot of celebrating of Fellini's work in cinema throughout the world. As we're fortunate to be the first North American venue to be presenting the Fellini retrospective, a couple of the restorations are, are just being finished in Italy, so we will be showing either 35mm or um, a digital copies. But for the most part of our 40-some screenings, we're going to be treating audiences to seeing brand-new digital restorations. And that means new color on the later films. It means that the archives in Italy have returned to the original camera negatives, digitized them, and spent a fortune doing um, very intricate digital cleanup and restoration of these works. So that when done by experts, digital restorations really mean that these works are seen beautifully in, in their theatrical presentation. Seeing Fellini on the big screen, which really ha has to to be an experience that you have, especially for a film like La Dolce Vita, or frankly for all of them. It does mean that you're, you know, you're seeing a beautifully cleaned up image and great attention to the sound and the scores. Um, so it's a really a, an important experience to have 
to also scale is so important with Fellini. So rather than watching it on a, on a home device, to actually see something with an audience and projected large is a really fun event. And I mentioned one more point about this whole project is that Van PFA is partnering with Cinema Italia, and there will be a one-day event at the Castro Theater on Saturday, March 7th, and it will be a Fellini Marathon Day. I believe there are uh, four screenings uh, showing on March 7th at the Castro Theater. In preparation for this, and also because I'm myself kind of OCD about such things, I managed to watch eight Fellini films over a 10-day period and two short subjects, which are also included as part of one of the series. Yeah. You know, we have one program in our Fellini retrospective that's called a Fellini Omnibus. And by that, we're taking the sections of omnibus films, so films that are directed by multiple directors, and we're constituting a single program with these three short works that Fellini made for different projects, and we call it a Fellini Omnibus. Before we get into some of the films, and I have a lot of questions, some of which could only be answered, I think, by Russell Merritt, who's doing a special In Focus series from January 29th through April 1st. Yes, the In Focus series at, at Van PFA is takes the format on Wednesday afternoons. Russell Merritt will give a short introduction to a particular Fellini film. The audience will see the film, and then there will be a chance for a, a deeper discussion about the film uh, following. So it's a, a time slot that on Wednesday afternoons from 3.10 till 6 p.m. when we offer in focus Federico Fellini, and it, it does begin on January 29th, running for 10 consecutive weeks. I've been talking to some millennials who have never heard of Federico Fellini, and more than likely, their only reference is the word Fellini-esque. So for you, Susan Oxtoby, what exactly does Fellini-esque mean, and how does it refer back to films by Federico Fellini? When we say Fellini-esque, we think of both the magic that Fellini brought to filmmaking in terms of his own aesthetic, but also the experience of seeing a Fellini films. He was so influenced by the circus and by psych psychology, and he his films are about fantasy and dream. And then visually, his works have a, a flamboyance, many of them, and a beautiful sense of visual design and editing. You know, much of the first part of the career is, well, all of the first part of the career is in black and white, and it wasn't until 1965 with Juliet of the Spirits that he made his first color film, and wow, you know, he went total color, saturated, and and just, uh, again, this sense of a flamboyance. But Fellini-esque, it also gives that sense of magic. Fellini films often have large casts, you know, a lot of stars, but also a lot of just intergenerational situations and, and communities, if it's a small seaside town or if it's Rome. Often the films are chock-a-block with characters and of all stripes. Fellini-esque does go deeply into the fact that Fellini was a filmmaker who believed in the power of dreams, and he brought that to his cinema. So he totally trusted that part of his imagination to inspire his stories the surrealism that comes through his narrative lines, the total jumping around a place and time, but also 
I think, a sense of charm. There are many moments in Fellini films that feel like a charmed life. But there's also a lot of biting criticism of society, too. When it all comes together, be it the contemporary world or more kind of Romanesque, traditional, classical style, I think that Fellini-esque is that, just that passion and, and sense of life. He started out at the end of World War II in what's called Italian neorealism. When he left his hometown of Rimini and moved to Rome, he initially was interested in drawing and puppetry and in the circus. And his first jobs uh, included doing caricature and working for a satire magazine. And then by the time, by the mid-40s, he was getting involved with filmmakers, uh, notably Roberto Rossellini. And he worked with Rossellini as a scriptwriter and as a co-director on one film. Rossellini, of course, does come from the tradition of Italian neorealism. So the films that Fellini worked on with Rossellini allowed him that type of orientation, from Rome, Open City, to Paisan, these are Rossellini films, to The Flowers of St. Francis. All three of those films will be part of the Bampiafe Fellini retrospective. Then Fellini co-directed a film, Variety Lights, with Alberto Latuada. And then his first true directorial credit is The White Cheek, a wonderful, wonderful film. One of the, the things where Fellini is breaking from neorealism is that he begins to use landscape as a metaphor and in a very poetic sense. In the early Fellini films that he directed, there is a touch of neorealism, of course, and that's partly because Italy at that moment was kind of living neorealism, this sense of the post-war era. But by the time we reach the economic boom in the early 60s, Fellini is full-out a modernist. I want to talk quick, quickly about some of the early films. E. Vitaloni, which translates, curiously enough, they couldn't find the right word for Vitaloni in Wikipedia and other places, but basically it means slackers. <laughs> People who live with their parents at the age of 30 <laughs> and don't have jobs. That film is close to neorealism. What's remarkable about it is that it even though it takes place in the 50s, it feels contemporary once you ignore the primitiveness, as we would call it, of the film stock. Yeah, 1953, Yvette it is about youthful boredom. And the, the five male characters are rootless. The film is based in um, a seaside town of Rimini, which was Fellini's hometown. And it takes the course of the duration of a year. It's about adventure and the fact that these five male leads really want to escape their town. The next film was La Strada, and that's where he seemed to have become Fellini in a way. Mm -hmm. Do we have any insights into why that film moved into that next level away from the neorealism of Ibitaloni? It's often described as a humanist classic. And I think visually, you know, he ups the ante a little bit in this, this film because it really uses landscape as poetry. It's a beautiful film. I just was chatting with somebody yesterday who said she had seen the film 13 times and she was coming again <laughs> when we're showing it. 
so La Strada was made in 1954, and it's essentially Julia Messina in the lead uh, female role and Anthony Quinn in the male lead role. But it is a, a story of spiritual redemption. I think that Fellini takes the story of these two very mismatched characters and what happens over the course of the story and allows that plot line to echo against the way in which we see the landscape. Mostrada means the road. It's rich with metaphor in terms of life and then redemption. The following film after that was Il Bidoni, which is not well known. It's a noir with Broderick Crawford. What these films have in common is the dubbing, which seems really strange, but it's my understanding that all of the films were dubbed with voices that we would think don't make much sense, but for the Italians, they did. Yeah, you know, it was commonplace, especially in Italian cinema, but in many parts of the world, to shoot MOS without sound. That's actually a German term, MOS. It went mit out sound. Uh, the German directors in Hollywood coined that film term. In the case of Fellini, uh, shooting silent imagery and then act, I think he asked his characters to count to 10 or count to 8, and then he would post-dub the dialogue in many of the scenes. And lots of times when you read about it or think about it, this allows for greater artistic expression because you can write your dialogue later. You're not locked into something that's completely synchronous with the image, the sound. There are also cost, economic reasons, cost reasons for shooting without sound. When you think of Fellini cinema, which is so um, extreme and flamboyant and complex, it's, I don't think it was a cost reason. I think it was more having the versatility. Also working with some actors who may not have spoken Italian. Well, I noticed in a lot of his films, he switches between English and Italian very frequently, and you have to be on your toes. It does pose a challenge when one thinks about which version are you showing. Are you showing the Italian version with English subtitles, which we almost always do, but when you then have a lead character who may be an English speaker, and to not hear that character's own voice seems odd. Il Bidoni is about con men who cheat poor people, and Kiberia is the reverse. It's about the poor people who get cheated. And it almost seems to me the two films are in dialogue. Is it obvious, or is that something I just happen to pick up on? No, I think it's a great observation that you're making. And Kiberia is the name of the lead female character in The White Sheik. So there, those films are also connected. And they're all both played by the same person. Exactly. Juliette <laughs> Messina. Right. La Dolce Vita is a major jump. If you're seeing Kiberia, you're seeing one film, and then suddenly you're seeing this often surrealistic but realistic at the same time epic. 1960, 1961, this was the moment of the economic boom in Italy. So everything was changing overnight for society. They were literally beyond the point of post-World War II societal problems and the bottoming out of the economy, and they had then come up, 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 and everything was escalating quickly. So I think that La Dolce Vita, which is 1960, which I do believe Fellini made fairly quickly, if I'm not mistaken, but it is epic in length. It's 175 minutes, and it is large in scale in terms of widescreen and, and very opulent and 
you know, complex camera work. But I, I think that it had that bigness of the moment in Italy. And oddly enough, you know, then it, you turn around and as the film was released, it was then banned for a couple of decades, I think, in Italy. Of course, it was an instant international success, highly influential. But at home in Italy, the film had a problematic history initially. You know, it is about a fantastic journey through Rome. It's, it's character-driven, but at the same time, it, it's all about this spirit of decadence in a paparazzi era with a main character played by the very sexy and chic but self-absorbed Marcello Mastriani, a wonderful Italian actor who worked with Fellini a lot. It's quite an amazing visual film. Uh, you mentioned paparazzi. The word paparazzo <laughs> comes from the cameraman, his friend, who's taking pictures in La Dolce Vita. By the way, I don't know if you even know this, but in one sequence in Juliet of the Spirits, he suddenly pops in and pops out in like <laughs> one second. I mean, one thing I noticed about Fellini is if you see these films, there are interesting connections. The father in La Dolce Vita of Mastroani is also the father of Mastroani in Eight and a Half. Right. Well, and I... I bet you a lot of this comes back to the fact that Fellini's mining an autobiographical spirit through uh, his storytelling, and his wife is often his lead character, Giulietta Massina, the wonderful Italian actress um, to whom Fellini and she had a 50-year-long marriage. They rose to fame together, and they, uh, you know, she his muse, but at the same time, absolutely an essential actor in his, his cinema. Similarly, I mentioned Marcello Mastroianni, very much associated with the Fellini cinema. And another important collaborator was Nino Rota, the composer, the Italian composer. And if anything gives a sense of Fellini-esque, it's, it's also the music, the original scores written by Nino Rota to all of Fellini's films. I mean, it, they're just inseparable, this set of collaborators. Well, the, the score seems to run from kind of a light jazz to circus music, yeah. which is very different. He also scored The Godfather, which is very different as well. I noticed, in fact, that Fellini pretty much kept the same editors throughout, the same cameramen. Mm -hmm. So he was working with the same people throughout his career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a great outdoor. I mean, this is... True for Fellini, true for Fassbender, true for Bergman. It's it's just, I think, a secret to success because when you think of filmmaking, it's just so difficult. You're always it's like a business that's being built for one project and then disassembled. But when you have a core group of writers, cinematographers, editors, actors, you can fine tune the voice of the director. And Fellini was masterful at doing that. La Dolce Vita. There was so much to unpack that it's almost as if that film, and probably eight and a half, you kind of need to see them more than once. Oh, I completely agree. Our schedule of the Fellini series allows for a lot of repeat presentations of the films. Over the course of the next four months, we'll be presenting the, the, all of Fellini's films, but also offering audiences multiple chances to see almost all of the titles. The brief segment in Boccaccio 70 it is a screw you to critics because it's about a scold, a moral scold, who looks out his window 
and sees a billboard of Anita Ekberg selling milk. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. It's absolutely fabulous. And as a response to critics mm -hmm. in Italy mm -hmm. who banned La Dolce Vita, it's a big middle finger. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. It's also his Twilight Zone. Eight and a half, it's my understanding that he didn't know what the hell he was making until partway through making it when he realized that the film is about the fact that he didn't know what he was doing. I know that sounds tedious in a way, but it's not. Eight and a half is monumental. It is a, one of Fellini's masterpieces. It is a film about a director, his alter ego, played by Marcello Mastroianni. So Eight and a Half was made in 1963, and it's, it is a landmark film in film history. And when you see it, you understand why. It's a psychological study of a film director. It's one of the most self-reflexive films that we can think of. Just watching the opening scene, which is a dream, of the film director, our central character, Marcello Mastroianni, in a car, in a traffic jam, but it's completely done in a kind of a surrealist dreamscape mode of filmmaking. And that scene segues to ascending into the, the clouds and then Marcello, the director, being pulled down to the level of the sea. And this is you know, just all right in the opening scenes. And it's, it's brilliant. But, and you look at Eight and a Half, for its camera work, for its sense of narrative structure, and actually, most of all, for its editing. You know, I feel like this is a film that is, for me, speaks to some of the high points in film architecture, bringing all of the elements of filmmaking together and in a really successful, original approach. And so I think a lot of people feel that, well, La Dolce Vita was one type of breakthrough for Fellini. Eight and a half really is a whole breakthrough in terms of a radically different film from what the world had seen. And from what I saw of Amarcord, which is his childhood memories and, and the ship sails on, and most likely most of the other later works, they have a certain reference to eight and a half in that He's no longer bound by time and space mm -hmm. through the rest of his films. Do you think that's pretty accurate? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Fellini goes very heavily into a, a sense of dream and fantasy at this point and through the end of his career, absolutely. Juliet of the Spirits speaks to Eight and a Half. Eight and a Half is about a philanderer. The next movie is about the woman who's married to a philanderer, so he's doing it again. Mm. Does this happen throughout? I mean, if you see all of these movies, do you see a dialogue between any two movies that you can just kind of invent? As Fellini is an auteur, his, his work is all in dialogue with itself. He's taking his life, he's creating art from it, and he's drawing on his experiences, and sometimes nakedly so. <laughs> I think Juliet of the Spirits is a case in point for that. It's... um. A story of a lonely housewife in, at her villa outside of Rome. Her husband is having an affair, and she's left to her own dream life. Now, Fellini tells the story as, as uh, with opulent use of color. Juliet of the Spirits in 1965 was Fellini's first film in color. And for all of those um, European auteurs, the first color film was a major statement. 
So we think of Antonioni's first film, Red Desert, or Bergman's first film from 1964. These were creative, masterful directors dealing with the use of color in film as a new expressive element. In I, Fellini, he makes a comment. I know how Wells felt with Ambersons in terms of producers taking away the films and recutting. It happened to me many times. This is a subtext even in an eight and a half. His producer, I mean, is constantly kind of adding to the anxiety of the lead character, the film director. One imagines that it was always the case with creative filmmaking, especially filmmaking that was going beyond the conventional length in the cinema and also so extravagant in its, its, its use of resources. I mean, Fellini was very extravagant, even if he was, knew how to do so with some economy. I think it's certain that Fellini was changing course midstream, so hard to plan around. <laughs> <laughs> All the later films, because I saw films from the early era, and those are the films that we remember more than the final 20 years of his life. Was there a drop-off, or is it just that these earlier films were revolutionary? You know, the early films are all classics. He received four Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film before the mid-60s. And then his fifth Academy Award was sort of an honorary award for Lifetime Achievement, which was received in his final year. Yes, I mean, perhaps as he pushed himself further and further into the possibility of what he could do in cinema, the films become a little less easily marketed and more interesting excursions into ideas and approaches. But I, I think there are others who, you know, are interested in everything that he does because it's by Fellini. Some of the later Fellini films haven't been distributed by North American distributors for years. And so actually having the chance to see some of the late period films is extremely rare. So a film like Intervista, for example, we can't talk about with the same depth as we can the earlier films or even some of the other films from that era. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm hoping that our younger generation of viewers are going to be curious about Fellini because one always worries as a, as a curator, but an archivist, you want to keep the history of cinema alive. You want to have chances to reevaluate it and to even experience it uh, in, in really good form. I'm really hoping that, for example, the UC Berkeley students will take advantage of this retrospective. I don't know if there are recent courses in Fellini being taught at the undergraduate level. Maybe not all the time, but this would be a great chance for um, younger viewers to, to check out Fellini. Susan Oxterby, I'm going to ask you a really tough question. If somebody just wanted to see, say, three Fellini films, which would be the three? Well, maybe The White Cheek. I'm a sucker for Alberto Sordi, the lead actor. I think he's one of the great Italian actors. But I absolutely would say eight and a half. You have to be a little adventuresome, but I think eight and a half is a really important film for everything combined, theme and content and form. And then, you know, you might want to include La Strada because that's a really important uh, work from 1954. 
Filmgoers have all different sorts of thresholds for adventure <laughs> when it comes to uh, challenging films. Fellini is challenging only sometimes in terms of duration but and uh, flamboyance of style. But I think that he also was always providing character studies that are very um, fascinating and also um, distill a lot of what we see in life. And one of the really nice things about Fellini's cinema is that he works with intergenerational stories. You know, that speaks to the ages. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Oxtoby, who is the curator of the Fellini retrospective, which runs through May 21st at BAM PFA, uh, the In Focus series, which includes lectures by Russell Merritt, is Wednesdays, 3 to 6 p.m., January 29th through April 1st. For more information on the entire series, you can go to bampfa.org. That's B-A-M-P-F-A dot O-R-G. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.